Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. But these guys, the, the Sadducees, they were materialist, they were rationalist, well, they were just into their own little world, and they didn't want Jesus rocking that world. Now, that's what they had in common with the Pharisees, you see. Someone has said, and I believe it's true, it's easier to get people together around what they're against than what they're for. And these guys were both against Jesus. We are now in Matthew chapter 16, looking at the first 12 verses. The title of this message is A Sign from Heaven, and in a scene that looks very familiar, Jesus is once again dealing with the religious leaders who once again are trying to trap him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Now let's look at how Jesus deals with this request once again. Matthew 16, we're looking at just the first 12 verses this morning. The title of our message is Sign from Heaven. Perhaps you've heard the expression beating a dead horse or you can't beat a dead horse and I always wondered about that myself and something came across my desk. A friend actually sent out his newsletter and has a little bit of insight into that expression and actually some very practical application to our study this morning. But it goes like this. It says Dakota Indians say that when you discover you're riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. However, in modern business, education, and government, a whole range of far more advanced strategies are often employed, such as buying a stronger whip, changing riders, threatening the horse with termination, appointing a committee to study the horse, arranging to visit other countries to see how, well, how other riders ride dead horses. Lowering the standards so dead horses could be considered, it's too good, living impaired. <laughs> Hiring outside contractors to ride the dead horse. Harnessing several dead horses together to increase speed. Providing additional funding and or training to increase the dead horse's performance doing a productivity study to improve the dead horse's performance. Declaring that as the dead horse doesn't have to be fed, it's less costly, carries lower overhead, and therefore contributes substantially more to the bottom line of the economy than some other horses might. Rewriting the expected performance requirements for all horses, promoting the dead horse to a supervisory position. Well. Now, the question is, how could that have any application to the study at hand? Well, that expression, beating a dead horse, we actually find these religious leaders here in chapter 16 doing just that. If you're new to a study of Matthew with us or haven't been here for a while, you need to know that back in chapter 12, the scribes and Pharisees had come to Jesus asking a sign, and Jesus had well, pretty much straightforwardly said, hey, no sign will be given this evil and adulterous generation except that of the prophet Jonah. We'll talk about that because it all comes up again. But there are a couple of things a little bit different here. And, and I was praying, of course, Lord, this looks oh so familiar. And we just covered this territory. Where are you going with this? Why would you put something so similar in, in such close proximity? 
And then I got it. He figures we didn't get it. And so he wants to make sure we do get it. Well, there are some very powerful things we're going to be considering together today. Actually, much different than what we looked at in chapter 12, but certainly as practical and applicable. Verse 1, we find out three things. Who these leaders were, why they came, and what they asked. We're told the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. You will have never found a more bizarre grouping except in our recent election where all of California, Democrat, Republican, and Independent all agreed on something for once. And that is, governor had to go, you see. Now, the reason I bring that up is it helps us begin to get a little bit of a handle on how weird it was for Pharisees and Sadducees even to be hanging out together. You see, the Pharisees were extremely conservative bunch. These guys read the word. They loved the word. They practiced it outwardly. I mean, meticulously to the point of when they tithed, they would count out nine seeds out of their little herb garden for themselves and one for God. They wanted to make sure that they, they were perfect in every respect and regard. Well, except for one thing, Jesus said, hey, outwardly, you guys are looking pretty good, but inwardly corrupt, decayed, full of dead men's bones. It doesn't sound like a pretty picture. And so what happens is you have these Pharisees who were spiritually, well, outwardly spiritual, I should say, but inwardly corrupt. The Sadducees, on the other hand, well, they were the rich aristocracy of the day. They played ball with Rome politically. Why? They had a power base and they were wealthy. They were materialist. And they wanted to make sure that nobody messed with that, you see. They were also rationalist. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a judgment. They didn't believe in angels. It's a surprising thing that they even claimed to believe in God. But, but these guys, the, the Sadducees, they were materialist. They were rationalist. Well, they were just into their own little world. And they didn't want Jesus rocking that world. Now, that's what they had in common with the Pharisees, you see. Someone has said, and I believe it's true, it's easier to get people together around what they're against than what they're for. And these guys were both against Jesus. These religious leaders, these standouts in the community, they were against and threatened by Jesus. So they're going to come and they're going to suggest a task. They're going to try to trip him up. They're going to try to mess with him. So who they were, Pharisees and Sadducees. By the way, when you get to the book of Acts, if you familiarize yourself with these groups and, and you find like Paul on trial at one point, and we're told he perceived that those who were trying him were a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees. And he says, for the hope of the resurrection, which we and, and our forefathers have taught and, and preached and believed, I'm on trial for that. And he said, in the midst of it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees just started arguing among themselves. He was just able to take off and, and hit the road. Well, that's how bitterly opposed these guys were to one another. And yet we find them here together. Well, confronting Jesus and trying to trap and ensnare Jesus. They came testing him. It wasn't the first time, nor would it be the last. They wanted to trip him up. You may recall that time when the religious leaders, they came and they said, uh, hey, is it necessary to pay taxes to Caesar? We all like those kind of questions. 
I mean, let's face it, property taxes in December, how much worse could it be? Oh, I know, property taxes in April when all the other taxes are due. And just like us, that generation, well, they struggled with paying their taxes. By the way, we're instructed as believers to pay our taxes, to be good citizens, to support the government no matter how much we may disagree with it or find fault with it. That God's put government there for a reason. Sometimes I'm wondering why, but the Bible says to protect us if we're doing good and to discipline us if we're doing evil. But that's another story altogether. So they come testing him. Now, when they came trying to pit him against Rome, and that was the test of do we pay tribute to Caesar? It was a loaded question. It was a trap they were setting. And so Jesus, knowing what was going on, he wisely answers, well, show me a coin. They pull one out. He says, whose inscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus answer. Well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Now, there, there's something here that, that you can miss and, and that I missed it the first couple of times I read through it. And so I want to draw it to your attention. The coins belong to Caesar because, well, his inscription was stamped on it and on them. But whose inscription was stamped upon man? You see, in Genesis, it said man was created in the image of God. And though sin has marred and distorted the image, so sometimes we can barely recognize that, that hey, the Lord lives in that person. And, and, and some of you, man, you just see it and, and you just shine for him. But here's the deal. The image was marred and distorted because of sin. But we belong to God by right of creation, by right of redemption. So we're to render under Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and we're to offer our bodies, as Paul instructs us, a living sacrifice, render ourselves to God. In another case, they come testing him. Same guys, same religious leaders. And they find a woman they say was caught in the very act of adultery. It is bizarre and troubling, this story, on so many levels. Not the least of them being they bring the woman, but where's the man? A little bit of a problem with the double standard there among the religious leaders of Jesus' day, first century. I'm not saying that doesn't exist in these days. But they bring the woman and they say, we found her, caught her in the very act of adultery. Now Moses says, we got a stoner. What do you say? They fail to pit Jesus against Rome, so they say, let's just pit him against Moses. Because see, if, if they had succeeded, by the way, if Jesus had said, no, don't pay your taxes, well, then Rome would be on him. And if he says, well, pay the taxes, well, then the people would go, great, you know. But, but the deal is he wisely settled that issue. And here again, they're thinking, we've got him. We've got him trapped, ensnared. And so we found her committing the very act of adultery. What do you say? Moses says stoner. What do you say? Figuring if he says stoner, well, then he appears to be as hard-hearted as they actually were. And then if he says, well, let her go, well, then what kind of savior just excuses sin and, and doesn't deal with it? It was a, a puzzling question, a, a certainly a, a difficult problem, but not for our Lord. And I bring this to your attention for a variety of reasons. I don't want to miss saying this. There are lots of things that puzzle me in this life and things that will puzzle you. He has the answer and he is the answer. You go to the word, you learn the principles, you pray for wisdom, and the Lord promises in James to give it. 
So while Jesus, filled with the Spirit always, did always those things that please the Father, well, he simply says in this case, all right, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Now, this was an absolutely biblical decision. You see, that was a part of the law, that if you accuse somebody of a capital crime, you had not just the right, but the obligation to stand in and be a part of their judgment. Well, that would kind of help you not falsely accuse unless you were really messed up. You don't want to be casting a stone at somebody that you know didn't really do it. But here's the deal. He says, well, if you're without sin, go ahead, have at it. If you've read the story or if you're familiar with it, well, even if not, from the eldest to the to youngest, they begin to leave. Why the eldest first? Well, they'd sinned a lot more than the young people. I know you young people think you sin more, but we lived longer and sinned more. And we've been forgiven much and we love much because of that. But, but my point is this, that, that after they all leave, Jesus says, where are your condemners? Where are your accusers? And she says, there are none, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, if he stopped there, he, it would appear he was actually saying, well, sin's no big deal. I'm just kind of overlooked this. But that isn't what he was doing. He could say, neither do I condemn you because he didn't come to condemn but to save. And because he knew he'd go to the cross and the blood he'd shed there would be sufficient to cleanse and cover that sin. That's, that's why he could say, neither do I condemn you. He wasn't just letting her off the hook. He was dying for that sin. If, in fact, she was even guilty of it. But then, get this. He says, go and sin no more. I love that. He'd be saying that to some of us. Hey, I'm not condemning you. Jesus didn't come to condemn. I don't want to be one who condemns in his name. But go and sin no more. We don't want anyone to come here and, and leave with their head down thinking, man, I'm, I'm such a miserable, horrible, you know, guilty sinner. By the way, that is what you are. A miserable, guilty, horrible sinner. But you shouldn't leave head hanging down. You should leave head up and filled with joy. And here's why. Jesus loves sinners so much. He died for each and every one of us, paid the price for our sins, shed his blood for the forgiveness, the remission of our sins. And so we don't want anyone to, to feel like they can't be forgiven. But you got to know in order to be forgiven, you've got to confess that you're a sinner and you've got a purpose in your heart to to turn from that sin. That's what he means when he says, repent and believe, repent and receive, repent and be baptized. Repent, it means to turn from your sin. So they tried to pit him against Rome in the question of taxes. They tried to pit him against Moses in the question of adultery. Um, in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, they came and they said, show us a sign. Show us, a, 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 what will you perform that we might see and believe. And then they say, you know, Moses, he gave us bread from heaven. Now, I've read that story lots of times, and I'm fully convinced at this point that what they're really after isn't a sign, just a free lunch, see? They'd had the 5,000, they were there, they got fed, and they're thinking, hey, let's do that again, you know? And truly, they're saying, hey, Moses fed the people, how long? 40 years in the wilderness, miraculously, supernaturally, every single day, they had food from heaven, bread from heaven. So Jesus says, Moses didn't give you that bread. That had to be a draw dropper for him. A draw dropper, a jaw dropper. That happens, you get your merds wixed up. That's, that's a Danny Lehman. I, I borrowed that one from him. But, but a jaw dropper, I mean, they just had to say, what, Moses didn't give us the bread? Oh, of course he did, no. Jesus said, my father gave you the bread. 
Don't miss the power of that statement. When Jesus said, my father, he was making himself equal with the father, one with the father. They got that, by the way. It's why they hated him so much. Not just because of the things he did, because most of what he did was good, or, or most of what he taught was good, but he claimed to be the son of God and God the son. And if that weren't true, well, that was blasphemy. But if it were true, well, they should have worshipped him as such, you see. And so what they do is they say, well, Moses gave us bread, man. I mean, and what are you going to do for us? And he said, my father gave you that bread. And by the way, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. See, they're saying, hey, we got bread from heaven, angel food, man, manna, our ancestors, our fathers. And he said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you'll never die. And later in that chapter in John 6, he says, unless you eat this bread, my body, and unless you drink this blood, my blood, you have no life in you. John 6, 6, 6, by the way, John chapter 6, verse 66, it records the response of many who were sort of nominal you know, they're following him, but they're not really sure about him. And when he says, you got to eat my body and drink my blood, they're like, that's it. You know, cannibalism, vampirism, we're out. And that's what happens. It says that many went away and walked with him no more. Now, was he suggesting for a moment that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you need to become a cannibal and a vampire? No. He says, hey, the words I speak, they're life. They're life. They're spiritual. They're spirit. And so he's saying, you've got to partake of me personally and you've got to allow my blood to cleanse you and, and, and change you or you'll never find life. Well, here the request is for a sign, but it's a sign from heaven. Show us a sign from heaven. We know they were testing him and so the request, show us a sign from heaven. Now, at Jesus' temptation, Satan suggested the very same thing. As he was there on the pinnacle of the temple, second temptation, Satan says, hey, I got one for you. Throw yourself down because, I mean, doesn't the scripture say he'll give his angels charge over you to bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone? Satan actually quotes scripture. Now, he doesn't quote it in its entirety because if he continue on, and this often happens, there's some things that wouldn't go so good for him. But, but at this point, he's just saying, here, make a splash. Well, no, not really. Just jump off. You won't splatter, I promise. And didn't the father promise? Hey, he'll give his angels charge over you. What's Jesus' response to that? Listen. Whenever someone suggests, be it the devil or your best friend or even your spouse, if they suggest something unbiblical, then you need to be able to say, it is written. And that's what Jesus said. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That can have a double meaning and no doubt in that context does. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering, why would he say my spouse? Hey, when Job was suffering severely, just going through it, he lost everything. You know his wife's counsel to him? She said, Job... Why don't you just curse God and die, buddy, you know? Just curse God and die. Now, that's not godly counsel. And I thank God for, for wives who give godly counsel, but anyone can give wrong counsel, and that was bad counsel. So, so the, the thing is, you've got to know what's written. It's a little too late to say, well, I'm sure the, the, the Scripture has something to say about that, honey, you know? No, it's like you've got to know it already. And Jesus says, it is written, again, because it was the second temptation, don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't test God. 
And, and so, in essence, he'd be saying, hey, I'd be tempting the Father to do such a thing, and I won't do it. And by the way, Satan was tempting Jesus at that moment, and you're not to tempt the Lord your God. So there's that double application. I won't tempt the Father, and you shouldn't be tempting me, testing me. Well, Jesus' response here is profound, as you would expect. He answered and said, When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. He says, you guys are amateur meteorologists, and you're not all that un inaccurate as far as being able to tell the weather, to look at the sky and figure out what's coming. But he calls them, the first of three things he calls them, three, three things he calls them, and you want to make sure that you are none of these three. First of all, he calls them hypocrites. He says, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. Two other things he calls them is wicked and adulterous. So, hypocrites, wicked, and adulterous. We'll deal with those three terms in a moment. But he says, you know how to discern the face of the sky. You can figure out what the weather's going to be, but you don't realize the times in which you're living. Now, if you read through Daniel, back in chapter 9, there he is. He's, well, he's living in Babylon because as a young man, he was exported there and uh, taken captive and taken to Babylon. He's been living there and, and functioning there for, well, quite a while now because the 70-year captivity was just about up. And Daniel was in the Word and he was contemplating the word and he realized that, man, it's about time to go home. This whole thing's about to wind down. And so we're told that he, he began to fast and to pray. He was in the word. He was fasting and praying. And there came this glorious revelation from heaven where in the latter part of Daniel 9, God says to Daniel and then now through Daniel as we can read it at our leisure, he says, hey, Know this, from the, the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild there in Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah, the Prince, it will be. And he begins to lay out a time frame for him. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus rides into and, and, and is right there by Jerusalem, he weeps for the city and he says, if only you'd known this your day, if only you'd known this your time. You see, he held them accountable. Daniel could simply read the scripture and, and say, hey, it's about time. Do you know that the Bible says when all these things, our Lord and Jesus says, when all these things begin to happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh. What things was he talking about? Well, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and then he talks about some of the other signs. And of course, the skeptic says, hey, there have always been wars, there have always been famines, there have always been pestilence, there's always been earthquakes, yes. But, but he likens them to birth pangs. And he says, when you see these growing in intensity and frequency, hey, it's about time. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Now, they were living in different times, but I bring this to your attention for two reasons. He held them accountable for the times they were living in and to know what time it was. You know, a lot of people were expecting Messiah to come at Jesus' birth. The wise men certainly headed the right direction. They knew basically where and when and they came, they wanted to know where exactly is this going down? We saw his star in the east. And so Herod, he goes and he checks with, with his counselors and they say, well, it's going to be Bethlehem. How would they know that? 
The scripture said so, you see. So the time of his birth, the place of his birth, the manner of his birth, that it would be miraculous, that the, the nature of his ministry, anyone who wanted to check it out could check it out. And they could know, hey, it's time. He's somewhere around. It's time to look for him. And because he held them accountable, we got to know he'll hold us accountable. While we are not held accountable to know the exact day of his return, as no one knows that date, we are held accountable to live like we know it. Titus 2, 11 through 14 tell us to live in a manner that shows that we have placed our hope in and expect his glorious return any time now. And doing this is part of the process that purifies us and readies us for his return so we can face that day without fear of being ashamed. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.